Research has shown that where you live can have a big impact on your type 2 diabetes risk. But what if you don't have a stable place to live? I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm talking to Dr. David Campbell about his work studying the effect of housing insecurity and homelessness on type 2 diabetes risk. Dr. Campbell is an endocrinologist from the University of Calgary and Alberta Health Services, who is currently doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Urban Health Solutions at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thanks, Krista. So first of all, I think the, the first question I have is, why this topic? I mean, it's really interesting, and it's not something I'd really considered until I heard you talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my work with uh, homeless populations goes back many years, uh, back to the earliest days of medical school for me, actually. Uh, back in the first year of medical school, um, my medical cla- medical school class and the one above was starting a student-run clinic uh, for um, the homeless population in Calgary where I went to medical school. Um, and I thought this was quite interesting and decided to get involved and I became a member of the executive board of the student-run clinic in Calgary for the inaugural class and we got this program up and running in Calgary providing very basic primary care through students and preceptors to homeless populations in Calgary. And I remained involved with the student-run clinic throughout the rest of my time in medical school. Um, And then moving on to residency and PhD, kind of that particular interest had to take a bit of a backseat as I pursued other interests. And as I started thinking about the work that I wanted to do for my postdoctoral studies, um, this kind of resurfaced as as an area of interest. Uh, You know, as an internal medicine resident, I'd certainly seen many people who've had experiences of homelessness who'd come in through the emergency departments in DKA for those with type 1 and poorly controlled type 2 with complications and amputations and it's something that we all see in clinical practice and um, I came to realize there wasn't really necessarily a good solution for this problem even though it's quite prevalent and very problematic Um, and so I thought you know as you said not too many people are studying this particular niche area and I thought maybe I had something to contribute in this area with my particular skills and research background and, and clinical training as well. Okay, and one of the things that is interesting is that we sometimes hear the term housing insecurity and we sometimes hear homelessness and I don't know that there's an understanding of what the difference is. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think even homeless, the, the term homelessness itself, you know, in general populations is not well defined. Uh, I mean, most people when they think of somebody who is homeless think of somebody they're walking down the street and see sitting on the street corner. Uh, But homelessness is a lot more diverse and a lot broader than that as well. And so um, experts and researchers in the field of homelessness itself have actually come up with a very broad definition of homelessness, which encaptures um, people who experience housing instability as well. So it's, you know, the absolute homeless, who are those who live permanently in shelters, uh, who live on the streets or rough sleepers. Um, But it also includes people who go in and out of homelessness. And that's, we actually know to be the the bigger subset of the population is there's people who are kind of tenuously housed. They may live in rooming houses or boarding houses um, and go in and out of job job stability. And when they're employed, they can afford somewhere to live and they may lose their job for a temporary period and end up in shelter here and there, spend a a night or a week in and out of transitional housing. And so there's a, a broader subset of the population that that live in this kind of tenuously housed situation. And so when we talk about housing instability, it's not just the absolute homeless, but it's those people who are at risk of becoming homeless and, you know, maybe have been homeless in the past, but are currently housed. So it's it's a little bit broader and and captures a a much bigger population. 
And I would think that for someone who was housing insecure, there would be a lot of risk factors because you don't have the ability always to go to your doctor. You may lose your health card. You may not have the type of ID that you need to go into hospital. You may forget appointments and medications. And so it would seem to me that this would be a really high risk population. Absolutely. Um, you've, you've nailed uh, a number of the barriers and challenges that this population faces, but really the list goes on and on about how difficult it is to manage diabetes um, in the context of housing instability. Uh, just the, the insecurity of not knowing where you're spending the night, not having somewhere to store your medications, all the facets you mentioned about um, attending appointments is jeopardized, being able to follow through with all of the diabetes education that they're provided. And, you know, I think we often get in the mindset of, you know, emphasizing people's agency. And, you know, we think that if we tell people how to eat and how to check their blood sugars, then they'll just do it without really understanding all of the myriad social factors that really constrain people's agency and ability to follow through with those recommendations. Absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the research that you're doing is that you're actually meeting with and talking to people who are experiencing housing insecurity or homelessness. And I know we've talked a lot on the podcast this season about epidemiology and yeah. studying populations through data, yeah. but you're actually talking to people. And why was that important? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, that gets back to kind of my roots as a researcher. I, I trained as an anthropologist before even going to medical school. So I, I come from that background of really thinking that uh, understanding people's stories, uh, there's a lot of power in not just the data and the numbers, but really understanding people's experiences and stories. Um, and also, I mean, a big part of the reason is that we can't really study this population very well, and it's never we don't have a nice administrative definition, you know, like we do for diabetes through the admin data. We can find out who has diabetes in the, you know, ICES data and then follow them longitudinally. But identifying a subset of the population that's homeless is, is much harder to do through pre-existing data. Um, and so creating novel data sets are the, really the only way to do that. And that's been done certainly very well here at this center with Dr. Wong. Um, in the past, creating cohorts of people who've been homeless and following them longitudinally to get that data side of things. But in terms of actually getting the qualitative, the stories behind people's lives, um, that hasn't been done as well in the health literature. And I, you know, I, I guess that's kind of me putting together my uh, endocrine hat as well as my anthropology hat and saying, you know what, we, we need to understand these people's stories. And that, you know, I think you and I, we just kind of spitballed some ideas about barriers and challenges that people face. But it's a different matter when you actually talk to people about their own experiences and what challenges they've actually faced. And so I think it's really important that we hear people's stories and give them voice to tell their own story. And has it been challenging to try and get people to talk to you or to find people to come in and be in a research study when they clearly have more important things on their minds, I would think, if they're dealing with so many other things in their lives? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always tell people that there's this incredible heterogeneity within the homeless population, right? And um, it's very difficult to say, you know, what working with the homeless population is like, because there's many different subsets of that population. There's the, you know, the, as I said, the kind of chronically entrenched homeless population, and many of them who struggle with, with mental health and addictions issues and, you know, have many other priorities on their plate other than participating in a research study. Um, but by the same token, a lot of them like to share their story and, and actually, um, jump at the opportunity to, to have their voice heard. Um, and so I'd say, you know, one of the biggest challenges in working with any vulnerable or um, socially disadvantaged population is, you know, getting all of the 
ethical clearances in place in order to be able to access the population. And you know, ethics boards are certainly very protective and making sure that people aren't exploited or taken advantage of, which is a good thing. But once, once we've kind of cleared all of those hurdles, it, it actually hasn't been that hard to find people. And people have been contact, con contacting us and wanting to, to tell their story and wanting to be involved. Uh, you know, one of the other questions that people always ask me about my work is, you know, I, I guess because my work is not just a one-time focus group or an interview, but we're actually finding people that we want to work with longitudinally. And we meet with, we have a, a diabetes, a Clients with Diabetes Action Committee, and we meet together every other week. And this started in December, and we're going through till the summer. Um, and we kind of told people that we expect them to be there almost every time, whenever they, they can be, unless, you know, extenuating circumstances come up. And people think, well, with homeless populations, is that, is that realistic? You know, what if they, you know, as we talked about, lose their housing? What if they find a job and have to work during the day? What if um, they've just got other priorities or other comorbidities that keep them from keeping that commitment? And that, that certainly has not actually been our experience. We've found, found a group of people, and certainly, as with any clinical study, there's a dropout rate. Um, but once we found our core group of people that are really excited and engaged and want to be part of this work, we actually have great turnout with our group. And so, Finding the right group does take some work, but uh, there's a lot of people out there who want to tell their story and really feel um, excited about the opportunity to do so. And with your work, what do you hope to, what is, what is the hope for the greater population through yeah. this work? What are you hoping to achieve? Yeah, a really good question. And actually one of, one of the study participants asked me that, that just last week in our group meeting. Um, but I always come back to the fact that I, we started this group, it's a participatory research project, which is a whole different kind of frame of seeing research than typical clinical research, which means that I didn't come into the group as the lead investigator with a predetermined research question. The whole idea of this work is that we gather together a group of experts, them being the experts uh, in, with lived experience, they're really the ones who, who have the expertise, and allow them to tell us what we need to study. You know, as we kind of talked about, we can come up with our own ideas about what should be studied, and that's typically what's done. But this research methodology is particularly strong in that we can study things that are of particular importance or relevance to the population. And so what we've been doing is we've been um, embarking on a process of concept mapping, which is a, a essentially a priority setting exercise with the group where we, we brainstormed what are all the different barriers and factors that influence their ability to manage diabetes while being housing insecure. And we came up with a list of 63 items between our other research, the literature, and our participants' own personal experiences. Um, and then we went on a process of sorting them into different categories, you know, what things relate to food and what things relate to medications. And they each sorted them in their own way and in their own kind of framework. And then we had them all rate all of those items in terms of which things are more or less important or more or less impactful in terms of the, the, their ability to manage their diabetes. And ultimately, we're kind of in the midst of that right now. Uh, but what we come up with there in terms of what their priority is is going to be what our research group priority is. And so that's, you know, in the next few weeks, we should have a really good sense of what research question we're going to tackle for the rest of the time that our group is meeting together. And, um, you know, it might be something, you know, they, they all certainly have had their own challenges and struggles. It might be around, you know, promoting advocacy for, for better access to food for those in shelters or in food banks. That's something that certainly comes up a lot, but it also might be about, um, in, you know, improving access to diabetes education in this community and, you know, providing more relevant or tailored diabetes education. And so until we kind of sum up everybody's rating scores and kind of come up with what is our priority, I couldn't tell you exactly where this is going because it's still a work in progress, but um, that's what we're working upon is really giving these people a voice to have what they think most is most important to, to be addressed. 
And I think that's really interesting. And one of the things that comes to mind is with type 2 diabetes in particular in populations where there's homelessness or where there's not enough access, there are things like foot care that becomes mm -hmm. an enormous issue. There's yeah. resource issues. There's other, um, you know, you had said comorbidities, but that's basically other is health issues that yeah. they might be dealing with. <laughs> and right. are you looking at any of those? Or are you really just sticking to what their, their issues are in terms of non-medical issues? Yeah, absolutely. So um, all of those were represented in our 63 items. So foot care was represented there, access to medications was represented there, access to health care, um, and then more social, as you said, kind of non-medical things about, you know, discrimination and stigma um, and, you know, prejudice and racism and structural violence in the healthcare system. All these things were kind of reflected in, in people's experiences. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think part of our research project already has been to kind of hear these stories and to kind of document people's experiences just to make other healthcare providers and other people in our community, in the diabetes community and in the, you know, the health literature um, aware of what these people face and how difficult it is to manage diabetes in the context of, of so many barriers. Um, so in an ideal world, we'd be able to address all of these, but as you kind of mentioned, um, you know, time is short and resources are limited, and so we're going to kind of pick what the highest priority for them is, and that's what we're going to tackle with our group now. But um, eyes to the future, you know, hopefully this program of research continues on and we're able to, you know, target many of these different areas and um, provide better access to comprehensive diabetes care. And I, I find it so interesting because one of the things you mentioned was stigma. And I know that for the homeless in particular, going into the hospital isn't necessarily something that, I mean, no one looks forward to it, yeah. but it's even more daunting when you are someone who is homeless and you yeah. maybe don't have the access to hygiene and you don't sure. have the access to food or other things. And there is definitely a bit of a stigma. Is there anything that you would say, having done the work that you've done so far to other medical professionals to try and mitigate that a little bit or make them rethink that? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'd say you're absolutely right. There's, there's stigma on the homelessness side, but if you talk to populations with chronic medical illness, there's, there's stigma on that end as well. And so this population kind of, the, the group that we're talking to has it bad on both fronts, that they feel, you know, stigmatized and judged because of their maybe quote-unquote poor management of their diabetes and you know certain health professionals you know see oh well this person has you know foot ulcers or neuropathy because they neglected their own condition a lot of that kind of victim blaming or pointing the finger at the person who has chronic illness and you add on top of that well now this person has you know potentially poor hygiene they maybe have other um, you know mental health issues maybe they have addictions and so um, there's so many, it can be such a complex situation uh, trying to manage diabetes in the context of, you know, social uh, chaos or um, there's certainly a variety of different factors. But I think it's really important that as healthcare professionals that we just channel our inner empathy. Um, that's really what it comes down to. And what our group members have always said is, you know, and it's not all bad stories that we hear. You know, certainly many of our group members have had wonderful experiences um, in hospitals, but more commonly with their own primary care physicians and diabetes care providers and feel that they're very well heard and taken care of. And so I think we just need to be able to be open to understanding people's own experiences. And I think um, that's difficult as a healthcare provider um, in times of you know, resource limited and especially time limited settings. You know, when you only have a 
10 or 15 minutes to spend with a patient, uh, it's very hard to really hear their story and understand why they're not managing their diabetes. It's much easier to focus on, well, your A1C is 10% and your feet aren't doing well and now your kidneys aren't doing well and kind of a lot of that negative aspect. Uh, the more we talk to people who actually spend a lot of time providing care in this population, it, it's really about the relationship. And where we're able to be successful is where we develop relationships of trust with, with this population, just like any others, um, where they feel comfortable coming to us and sharing with us what their challenges and struggles are. And uh, that's when we're best able to provide what, what they need rather than telling them what we think they need. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the, the big strengths of the other facet of the work that I've been doing is going around the country talking to people who provide care for this population and heard fantastically inspiring stories of people working in community health centers and shelters who, who provide really re excellent relationship-based care for this population um, in an empathetic way. Um, and I think that's what we all as healthcare providers need to do a better job channeling. And I would guess that this is something that's going to really inform your own clinical practice when you go back to seeing patients again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, certainly I, I, you know, coming from this background, having worked with this population early on in my medical training, I, you know, I always thought that I would be mindful of these things. But um, in the hustle and bustle of medical training and the, the constant demands that are on us, it's, it's easy to lose sight of those things and to kind of um, fall into the trap of, you know, in the anthropology literature, they call it the, the medical gaze, that, you know, you just get used to seeing patients through a lens and start seeing them as patients rather than as people. And I think that's a, a risk that we all face as healthcare providers. And it's really important that we channel our, channel our inner humanity and, you know, really that we take advantage of seeing these people as people and relating to them as on a person-to-person -person level rather than doctor-to-patient or provider-to-patient level. Um, so certainly it's, it's never easy. There's always lots of demands, but I think um, in my practice that's certainly something I'm going to continue to work on and try to be better at now that I've heard these wonderful inspiring stories as well as some stories of healthcare providers that have maybe not provided the best care for this population. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. That was really, really interesting and, and very enlightening. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Excellent. So, and thank you for listening to the Diabetes Canada podcast. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast provider of your choice so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can share them on social media. You can find Diabetes Canada on all the social platforms at Diabetes Canada, or you can drop us a line at info at diabetes.ca. Thanks for listening.